it kind of happened by accident that when I was living in Austria, working for an educational startup, I used to write songs for the staff to perform and kind of as a way of team building, but not intentionally, just because I liked writing songs. And that kind of turned into this thing that we did every time we got together. And when I left, they sent me a video of them all playing songs on the ukulele. And I thought, I just saw this snapshot. I thought, well, maybe I can take this into companies. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. If you've ever had a crazy creative idea for a business or project, and then you've talked yourself out of it because you couldn't see where it would go and what the point was and how you could ever make some money out of it, well, this is going to be a great podcast for you. Sarah Weiler runs a business called Power of Uke, teaching ukulele to giant corporations such as Google. Sarah also runs a London comedy club that's been running for six years ever since she launched it during a program I used to run called the 30-Day Challenge. On top of this, she has collaborated with Airbnb and she's given a TEDx talk. Sarah has so many creative projects she wants to pursue, but she developed some really interesting ideas about how to manage them all and how to decide which ones to continue and which ones to quit. So, Sarah, thanks very much for joining us on the Ideas Lab podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very interested in the, the, the whole track of your career. We featured you in the new book, Fuck Work, Let's Play. And we tell a little bit of your, because I, I think there's an interesting part to your story, which we won't cover in this podcast, but it's how you worked out what you wanted to do. So people can read that in the book when it comes out at the end of August. But I think there's so many interesting projects you're doing and you help people who have too many projects, something we've both <laughs> too many. been involved with. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but we first met because you did this course of mine called the 30-Day Challenge. And do you want to tell people what your project was in the 30-Day Challenge? Yeah. Yeah, so I, um, I set myself the task of writing 30 minutes of comedy in 30 days. So I'd always wanted to do stand-up and I'd, I'd written quite a few songs over the years, kind of comedy songs when I was a teacher, but I'd never really done anything with them. And then when I stopped teaching, I had, I've had nothing to write about anymore. So it was like, I just had all of this, this desire to perform and I kept getting your emails through and I was like, no, I don't need a course. I, don't, I can motivate myself. And then I was like, I definitely can't. <laughs> I definitely do need a course. And it was it was brilliant. Like, And then what, what was cool about it is, your question of like, what is, yeah, what excites you about that idea? That has really stayed with me because what, what did, it wasn't really about performing in the end. What excited me was about hosting a night. So what started with me writing comedy ended up being a comedy night. And I think you came along to it and, and quite a lot of the other people on the 30 day challenge came another one even performed there. And so what was beautiful is that I never planned to run a comedy night. But through doing the 30-day challenge, I created one because that's where the energy was. And now we've been running that night for nearly six years. And it's we've had amazing, 
amazing performers. We've got James Acaster, Sarah Pascoe, Ashling B, some brilliant people. And and also we've always had someone doing their first ever gig. So I really wanted to keep that essence that had enabled me to do my first gig. Um, so we have that whole spectrum of performers all in one night. It's amazing. And that, and that, yeah. Yeah, but so when you started this, the course they used to run called the 30 Day Challenge, which was about yeah. 1,300 people or something it took. And when you started, did you have that idea or was it, was it just to do 30 minutes of comedy? Yeah, so I was trying to decide between did I want to do 30 minutes of comedy or did I want to learn to DJ? And I realized that I, the DJing would probably rely too much on borrowing people's equipment and I knew that I could do the comedy alone. So no, it was it was very much that, I thought I was just going to go and perform it somewhere. But after a bit of digging, I realised you couldn't do a 30-minute set at an open mic night. Funnily enough, they don't go, oh, your first gig, have half an hour. <laughs> I was, yeah, we're trusty. So I was like, oh, I think I'm going to. So then, yeah, I don't know, something then shifted. And I thought, well, why don't I hire a venue? And then actually I could bring some people in to join me. And then suddenly the idea was more about creating co-creating this night with others and that's where I got really excited so it wasn't really a, I mean it enabled me to perform and I loved that but the bit that really excited me was filling out um a top floor of a pub having loads of friends and family um and you know just kind of go large or go home I had yeah probably 100 people watching me do my first ever comedy gig <laughs> that could have Which gone either way something I, yeah. I mean I think it's amazing and I I love that response like okay I want to do half an hour of comedy oh, people don't allow you to do half-hour comedy on your first gig. Oh, I'll put it on a, my own comedy night then. And it was, you were not messing about because I remember going to that thing. It was a really it was a really nice room. It didn't look like a room by the pub. It looked really nice. And um, you had, you had some, I mean, everyone was funny, I thought. And you had some really, really funny people there, people who were quite established as well as beginners. So the people off my course trying things out for the first time. And then there were also, some great comedians. And so I thought that was just a fantastic result. And no wonder it's still going six years yeah. later, did you say? Yeah, well, it will be six in October. Although I feel a bit guilty calling it a six-year anniversary when we've basically had to pause it for the whole of the pandemic. But, um, yeah, we decided to not do an online comedy. But um, I think that was <laughs> that felt like the right decision. Yeah, no, yeah. I think we'll allow that. <laughs> so I, I think it's interesting because I, it's, a, it's a great inspiration for people. It's like, just create what you want to yeah. exist in the world. And um, and then how did you go from there to something I find fascinating, which is your business, Power of Uke? Mm. Power of Uke was kind of, it was existing alongside that. I always think 2014 was the year that I just, I came back to London after living abroad and decided not to go back into full-time work. So I, I had a, quite a few different part-time jobs and I had one day a week that I said, right, that's my day for exploration, for play, um, for just seeing what I want to create. And I set up four things that year, <laughs> two of which still exist. <laughs> but um, it was a, so Power Rebuke was happening alongside that. I'd yeah, I think I mean, you, I've written about this. You wrote about this in the book, but it's um, it kind of happened by accident that when I was living in Austria, working for an educational startup, I used to write songs for the staff to perform and kind of as a way of team building, but not intentionally, just because I liked writing songs. And that kind of turned into this thing that we did every time we got together. And when I left, they sent me a video of them all playing songs on the ukulele. And I thought, I just saw this snapshot 
I thought, well, maybe I can take this into companies. And actually, I remember Googling ukulele team building and it already existed. And I was like, oh, that's annoying. I was like, no, that's really good. That means people buy it. <laughs> so I kind of like immediately caught myself. I was like, no, it's good to have some competition. Um, yeah, so when I got back to London 2014, I, I taught music two days a week um, at a high school. So I was a trained teacher before. And then I started running like ukulele meetups in pubs. Um, it started with like two people. It was called Chukaleles, great pun. And then we also did Singaleles, which is a singles night. <laughs> Basically, I just find the fun. I think no single people were there in the end, but it was it was um it was a good one. So yeah, so I started running meetups, and then that was basically honing my craft of of teaching strangers, of, of practicing songs, getting this repertoire of songs. Um, and then I think that November, so I think the first one was in the February, November, someone booked me for their staff Christmas party or like staff party, and that was the first thing where I was like, oh, I could charge for this. I have a product. Um, yeah. And so that it's just been evolving since then, really. Yeah. And I think that what I like is how, as you say, you follow the energy. And I I first heard that phrase from a friend, John Parkin, who wrote, fuck it, the ultimate spiritual way. And he said, like, he can, he can feel it moment to moment when he does, um, uh, Qigong and Tai Chi, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things he's really into. And, uh, it, but that concept, so he says there's like a physical representation of that. But if you go where the energy is, it'll always take you somewhere interesting. And sometimes that'll end up being a, a career thing, a pay thing, and sometimes it will be yeah. just a hobby. And you've had things that have gone off and become sort of hobbies and you've done for yeah. free and fun. And then, you know, you went trying to make money from the comedy night at first. And, uh, and then it becomes something... Um, particularly in this case of a power of uke, where it mm. it does become a real earner. And yeah, you you've taught ukulele to some big companies, haven't you? Of some you can name. Yeah, so Google is one of my main clients at the moment, and I regularly work with them on their design sprints. So this is I'm really proud of this that they use me when for like one section of Google whenever they are taking a company through a design sprint. So they're kind of reinventing their business, um, digital transformation that I kick off the week and I do a two hour workshop all around growth mindset, around play, around experimentation. So yeah, for them to see that as really valuable and for them to do something so different feels feels really good. So yeah. And so on the surface of it, it sounds a bit uh, 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 a bit superficial teaching ukulele to people in corporations. Mm. But when he explained it to me, and I think we captured this in the book, I can't remember now, but when you explained it to me, it was really deep and it yeah. probably uses all of everything you learned from working as a teacher and then working in education organizations. Yeah. Can you explain why ukulele is not just, yeah. you know, fun? Why, why, why something deeper is happening mm. in the workshop? Yeah, and I think you're right to name that because I think at the start it probably was fun. And I, through doing these workshops, suddenly saw a deeper level, which I then teased out more and more. And that then became the main thing. Um, It was fun to start with, and it still can be. But I think what I say is that I take people through the process of learning the ukulele from scratch as a way of mirroring other processes where we're thrown in at the deep end, where we have no idea what we're doing. So, you know, a lot of companies, especially now, it, it, there's such rapid change. There's so many unknowns. A lot of people are thrown into roles where they feel totally unprepared. So by teaching someone an instrument from scratch very quickly, you're you're bringing, you're triggering similar reactions. But yet, because it's learning an instrument, people are 
feel quite open to say, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm really stressed about this. Oh, I feel really overwhelmed. Oh, I don't want to take part. And you're like, okay, interesting. So, and other people won't be like, no, no, I need to get this right. I need to understand this. And others will be really helping everyone. And is everyone okay? And you start to see like people's responses. And, you know, it's not, I don't, want to cycle it's not too much like psychology but I, I suppose it's it's just showing people it's it's allowing these things to come up in a safe and playful way so that they can work with them and so if you've managed what I think one of the most powerful things I've seen is that a group of lawyers sat around and all said I don't know what I'm doing I don't know how to do this I feel ridiculous and I'm a bit stressed and I just said you know how often in a case would you sit around and say I don't know what I'm doing. And how does it feel to be in a room where you can do that? And everyone's like, oh my God, such a relief. I feel so much more chilled. I feel like I can just do the work. So it's like teaching, it's giving people the experience of being vulnerable with each other, um, of, of, of just trying, interacting in a much more human connecting way where it's okay to be wrong, where it's okay to look silly, where it's okay to ask questions which that and that's really where I what I'm offering people through the yeah. music. Yeah. And it and it's uh it makes me think of that phrase of what you do anywhere is what you do everywhere. So, so true. Like yeah. you say the person who's helping everybody will be doing that everywhere. Those are the kind of people mm. who uh sometimes that's one of the traits that that promotes burnout because you you overextend yourself yeah. and you, you you other people's worry is your worry. But so there's all sorts of yeah, there's a lot of depth in there. It reminds me of my psychotherapy training where they would, the whole thing was just about bringing awareness to what you do. This is how you do endings. This is how you do new relationships. This is how you do decision-making. And like mm. whatever you're doing in that moment is like, that's what you do everywhere. It's it's um, it's the same. I remember uh, somebody storming out of the the, the, uh, the training room where we were doing our psychotherapy training and then eventually came back and the leader said, um, so do you do this a lot, storming out? No, no, not at all. I've never done that before here. Never done that before. And I, you know, I've never do it. He goes, really? Because once is a pattern. And so, and, and everyone went, ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> but, but we, so we all thought about it and we thought like, okay, no one, whatever anybody's doing in any one moment is representative of everything they do and the way they approach life and even if you very rarely blow your top the fact that that is in your repertoire some people will never you know explode for instance they will be passive aggressive or they will be whatever it might be but those patterns persist yeah so and it, it's, fascinating. it's interesting because i you know I, when i share with people about this they say but what if someone's already really good at the ukulele and like, won't they just they won't get anything from this but often the people who are really good hold themselves back because they hold themselves to such high regard or they don't want to take over or they don't want to show off. So even within, you know, there's always interesting layers to whatever's going on. But I think what the, the, the reason why I think music's powerful is because most people feel OK saying they're not good at music, like it's acceptable. And I think that then allows that vulnerability. Whereas if you would, if it was like maths or writing, there might be, I don't know, or sports even, I feel like there's, Music, a lot of people think they're bad at music. And it's very healing for people to do this work because they come out of it and they're like, oh my God, I just thought, I thought I couldn't do that. I just thought that wasn't available to me. So I've had some like, you know, men in their thirties crying in the closing session <laughs> really? because wow. they're like, 
I just can't believe I've just got up and done that <laughs> and sung it, sung in front of wow. everyone. Like, wow. yeah. So it's, it's a real journey. Yeah. <laughs> we take the one. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, it makes me think of people who say like, I can't read music and they go, well, everyone can read music. It doesn't matter how slowly, because, because <laughs> once you know that the, 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 the notes on the stave, it might take you, you know, 10 seconds to work out every note, but you, everyone can read a piece of music. It's just whether you can do that, you know, one extreme there's sight read. And then at the beginning extreme, it's like you have to look up a kind of guide and go, that's F, that's that's that. And it just takes a really long time. So, but people use these blanket statements of, I can't swim, I can't, um, uh, you know, I can't read music. I mean, if you, human bodies float in the water. So it's like, I'm a really bad swimmer, but no one, I don't, I think can say they can't swim at all. So I just think for me, that's a helpful model because it means everything's on a scale. It's not zero or one. And I think we simplify things in that way to, I don't know what, take anxiety away or something. Um, so you ended up doing a, a TEDx talk, is that right? I did, yeah, I did. What was the topic of that? So the talk was called Knowing When to Quit. Um, shall I give you some background to why yeah, I yeah, did yeah. that topic? Yeah, so... It was my old university that was um, off, uh, putting on the TEDx. So they they wrote to all the alumni and said, would anyone like to apply? And the theme is embracing challenge. So I was like, oh, what are all the challenges I've had? And started thinking about, you know, setting up my business, you know, all these, these things. And I thought, you know, what's been most challenging has been when I had to, when I didn't want to continue with the challenge anymore. That was the challenge for me where I said, hey, guys, I'm launching this startup. And then I was didn't want to do it. And I was, that's been those moments that went like moving away from challenge or like deciding to discontinue. So I wrote on Facebook, um, I'm thinking about talking about the topic of quitting. I'm just interested in if anyone's had some like people's experiences. And I was absolutely inundated with the responses. I mean, I sent out a survey and I just got hundreds of people sharing like, obviously like the first time for many that they'd share these quitting stories because I think there's a real shame around quitting. And I saw an amazing quote the other day, someone writing on LinkedIn. He said, don't quit because it's hard, quit because it sucks. And I, it, maybe that just absolutely epitomized the difference because we, we feel that quitting is synonymous with giving up, with not being strong enough. But, you know, if you think about, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, when I was running a workshop on quitting. If you have a relationship that is breaking down, of course, work at it. But if it's abusive and it's, and it, you're unhappy, you wouldn't force people to stay in that. That would actually be very, very unhealthy and very aggressive to, to ask people to stay in that. But yet with projects, there is an aggression to it, I find. <laughs> there's an aggression to or, or a kind of a shame that makes people stay with things that aren't working. And, and for me, my, my value is putting the energy into where like we, we've got energy and we might as well put it into things we want to do. And I think I have a very sensitive feeling to when something's not working for me anymore. Like I've really honed that. Oh, I think I don't want to work on this. And for me, the, 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 the whole of the exploration with quitting has been, when is that because it's hard? And when is that because I just don't want to do it anymore? And so I came up with these two words, which were disinterest versus discomfort. And I think there's a really interesting playing off because discomfort often means we need to keep going. 
because we're getting it's that kind of the dip I think that Seth Godin talks about isn't it it's that getting to that moment where you go oh okay this is this is where I have to scale or this is where I have to sack a member of staff oh okay this is the discomfort but sometimes it is just disinterest and you're like I don't want to do this anymore and it's not heavy you just you're not bothered However, I do sometimes think that dis- discomfort can dress up as disinterest. Can, yeah, that's right. Yes. So you can be like, I'm oh, just not really into that anymore. And you're yeah. like, really? Because you've been working that for 10 years like, and you've just tried to raise money. So ah, I'm not that bothered. <laughs> or, the other, or the other way around where you're not interested, but you tell yourself you just need to keep working harder. So these are very complex. I think these, these things, I, I'm very interested in how they interplay. And so this is one of the things that I've created in the last couple of years, the quitting quadrant, which is um, which I think I sent for a link um, in the in the notes. But it's um, yeah, it's it's a model where you can when you're feeling I'm not sure I want to go on with this anymore. You can check in with what it is. So what's the level of disinterest? What's the level of discomfort? And that gives you these different words and you can just be like, does that feel true? For you and uh, I don't know I just find this such a fascinating topic because of the shame around quitting because it's so because it's default negative I think it stops people from actually looking at how they're really feeling yeah that's my, that's my feeling I, no I think you're right and, and plus there's this whole you know in the world of coaching there's this whole macho thing of only losers quit. And and at least Seth Godin, I do like that book, The Dip, but it, I think yours is quite distinct. But I like The Dip by Seth Godin. It's quite an old book now where he mm. talks about, um, you know, when it's sensible to quit, you've got to tell whether it's just a dip or whether you've yeah. come off the cliff. And I and it also people don't, it's like startup stories. No one talks about the failures. I remember reading a um, an article somebody written, but it was something, and he basically, it opened with him, you know, switching off a servers. And this point, everything spins down, which is very tragic when you mm. dreamed of being the next big thing. And it's um, it's a moment most people don't talk about. And so you get this skewed view of, of startup, of tech startup success, because you only hear about the successes mm. and 90% of them or something fail. Uh, so I think it's a really good topic. Have you got a, a book deal yet on so- this? Not yet. This is a cracking. Well, there's two books here. We will talk about the carousel thing in a moment. Well, interestingly, so before before lockdown, I it went to nearly. I nearly got a book deal, but the feedback was quitting is too negative a topic, and we and it would it wouldn't. And I was like, then you've missed the whole point. What was so interesting is that even the woman who was like advocating for me, she was like, Sarah, I get it, but I was like, you're not my publishers. If if this because I was, and it actually made me think, this is shows me even more how much we need this because if the if people because I was like the whole point of this is to help people to make the right decisions so that they can be using their time on earth the best way possible how is that not positive she's like it's just the word we can't have the word and she had all these different options and I just thought no it has to be it has to be this word because if we can't deal with this word it's still going to have this like you know see I think in the same way that vulnerability has had a bit of a makeover in, mm, with Brené yeah. Brown in the last few years that you know people like would tell her to do talks but not talk about vulnerability and she's like no that's what we have to talk about so I feel the same with quitting and I my dream would be to be like the Brené Brown of quitting <laughs> I feel yeah. like that I, I, I yeah I find it 
and and you know I was talking to you a bit I think during lockdown or before about this idea of being a good quitter so actually that quitting is a skill we need to hone and that I I think one of the big things of quitting is getting good at what you take on in the first place and saying no I think part of the reason we struggle with quitting is because we're people pleasers we end up with all of this stuff we said we'll do and then we can't get out of it so really part of the the discernment before you take things on in the first place is also a big skill. Yeah. So no, I don't have a book deal yet, but I, it, it's being written. It, it's emerging. And with every conversation I have, I'm, I'm getting clarity on what it's about. So. And, and I definitely support the subtitle can be positive. So you can, you can recover in a subtitle and the, and the title can be shocking, you know, the power of quitting or whatever it might be. Uh, sorry, the quitting. Well, you don't want to call it quitting. No. It doesn't make sense, but I'm, you may have a title already. Um, but then if a subtitle says something, something aspirational, then yeah. it makes up for the title. And, is, and I agree that I think the publisher has been too narrow minded. And, and I think it's a really good test for anyone who's, who's watching us or listening to us here that what, what tells me you really hit a nerve mm. is I think it is one of those things no one's talking about. Just like there are so many, you know, this, the, the, um, uh, the, the Me Too movement would come into that category. It's like everybody, all women, knew the history of of what men do to women, but they weren't really talking about it as a thing publicly. Quite, you know, everyone had those. Like, just like you found, there were stories of quitting. There were mm. remarkable stories from from the Me Too movement, and it was it gave everyone permission to suddenly come out and share that story. Some people who'd never done it before, so. I think it's a, obviously that's a very dramatic example, me too. But yeah. I think there are lots of topics like that. And I think, um, and I, what really tells me you're on the money is when you put out that quiz or you put out a post on yeah. Facebook and everyone responds and wants mm. to share a story. And I think then you end up with all these really powerful stories of quitting, which can be, because I know from my own field that the moment you walk out of your job, for instance, Obviously, it's usually an aspirational thing. You walk out of your job and you go do something. But that moment, so many people relate to, and it's so pivotal, but it's always a very powerful emotive story. Mm-hmm. And it's great fodder for, for a book or for any kind of article or something like that. Um, I still remember the moment I walked out of Deloitte. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so this is, so the, the, the quitting quadrant kind of came mm-hmm. out of the fact that you're interested in all these different things. And then, yeah. which kind of brings us on to the next topic, mm. which I thought was really interesting, was uh, I think something you call the carousel or what, yeah. what do you call it? Carousel, yeah. So, yeah, so I feel like I, because I, I'm a teacher at heart, I create things, tools. I can, like I can't stop creating resources to help people. And really, I create them for me first. So the quitting quadrant came because I was trying to decide whether to quit something after my TEDx had finished. I was like, oh God, I'm in it again. <laughs> and so the model came and the carousel was similar. So it was about a year ago. I was, sometimes when you're doing a lot of things, you can feel quite negative about it. I was definitely one of those spirals where I thought, oh, if I just focused on one thing, I'd have been so much further along. I thought if I just done Power Rebuke, I probably would be, you know, whatever, wherever I am. And then something just hit me and it was like, what if I'm as far along as I am because I've done so many things? What is what if it's because of the people I've met in comedy that have then been my clients for Power of Uke? What if it's like 
the energy that all of these things have given me that have enabled me to be motivated. And I just suddenly saw it in a totally different way. And then the carousel idea was, one of the things I do is I DJ and I, I was feeling really a lot of shame because I'd spent a lot of time DJing and then I'd not really done anything for a few years. And then I'd had this massive spurt again and then nothing. And this image came to me of like a Yo Sushi conveyor belt and the DJing was at the front with me and then it kind of went around and then it came back and it just kept coming around. And I thought, it's this car- this word just came in, carousel. And this idea that all of our projects move around and they come in and out of focus. And I felt my whole body relax because I thought, it's not that I'm neglecting these projects. I'm giving them my full attention and then I give them some space. Full attention, space. In fact, I am giving incredible focus to whatever is alive for me in that moment. Whatever is at the front of the carousel, I am showing up for. And as soon as it doesn't feel like it's alive for me anymore, I allow it to move to the back of the carousel. That is not me being flaky. That's actually being very energy efficient. And what's lovely is that things can then be at the back of the carousel and they might stay there forever. You might never see them again or they'll come back round. So something like Power of Uke for a while was at the back of the carousel. And then last summer, I decided to take on and train some staff to be extra facilitators. And then it was back at the front again. And actually, I think what's important is like giving our projects space to breathe and to sleep, you know, in the same way that we need to sleep every night. (laughs) I think our projects need time away from us. If we're constantly with them, like what's happening next? It's like being with a friend and being very needy and like demanding their attention or like a child, you know. And I think there's something really beautiful about seeing the projects as kind of having an energy of their own. So, I, yeah, this idea of carousel came in. I started talking to people about it who also were similar to me in the way that they ran their lives. And I could just see everyone like getting quite emotional mm-hmm. at the, the, the relief that oh, if I'm not working on it, it doesn't mean I'm lazy. It doesn't mean I've forgotten. It doesn't mean I'm not motivated. It just means I'm not working on it right now. And it will come back round. And often the moment I accept something's at the back of the carousel and I really allow it to be there, it comes back round. And it's just seeing, like, trusting that we'll work with what's ever alive, whatever is alive. So, yeah, that's the idea of carousel. And I've been running some workshops over um, lockdown. Like, I've got, like, meditations that you can do to kind of understand your carousel. So there's six parts to it. There's front of the carousel, letting go. Oh, no, sorry. Front of the carousel, finishing up, letting go, back of carousel, on my radar, bringing into focus and then in focus again. And I get people to feel into what it's like in their bodies when they're in those different sections. So you can start noticing, like for you with this book, where would you say it is right now? Would you say it's like front of carousel? Or would yeah. you kind of say it's finishing up because of the launch? Oh, God, no. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> very, very front. Front, yes. Yeah. Because we're into promotion you, phase. Do you have a sense of when things are finishing up and when you kind of are putting them at the back? Does that resonate with you? I think my, my business is a bit more focused these days. Mm. Uh, so um, it tends to be fairly consistent. But I think, but there are things like music, for instance, that I've been playing around with since I was 18. And mm. I always felt a bit weird sometimes. I ended up getting rid of most of my studio equipment because it's, it just takes up so much space. And I was moving it around house to house and not using it. And then when I came here 
for some reason, this, I'd always wanted to have an electronic drum kit. And oh, yeah. there's there's quite a lot of space in this place. Uh, this is a live workspace. So it's my office and my home. And and I thought, well, it's like suddenly I looked at my bedroom, which has an enormous amount of space. It's not really being, uh, but <laughs> I have no use for. And um, I just thought, well, why don't I just get this electronic drum kit? Particularly when I discovered there was one that was really quite affordable, but everyone agreed was good, which is the, uh, mm. there's an Elisis drum kit. And, and so I bought it and uh, I've been playing around with it a bit. But then I, I get this perfectionism thing you were talking about where I, I don't play, like my, my uh, enthusiasm gets suppressed because what if I'm no good? So I still have yeah. that kind of stuff around mm-hmm. music. And I, but I know some ways of getting around that, which is like, if I just play a little bit every day, then I can, I can sneak past my mm. internal critic. But so that's one that's come around after a big that's gap nice. of 10 years or probably more than 10 years, actually. Yeah. And at some point I, you know, I have ideas for music and I'll, I'll do, I'll make some weird soundscape thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll happen again. So the carousel thing, I think, is really interesting for people, particularly people who are more in a, um, like a portfolio career type. Mm, totally. Where there's several things on the go. And um, and that in itself is also a book, of course. Have you considered yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I think I would suggest quit, quitting Codron first and then yeah. carousel book. I agree. Second. Well, like, also because the quitting quadrant I've been with for longer, I feel like it's ready to write the quitting quadrant. Yeah. Um, Carousel, I'm still learning. And I, there was an, it was an interesting thing just before lockdown where I was like, oh, there's nothing at the front of my carousel. And then I was like, oh, that in itself is a thing to be with mm. the nothingness. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of I took myself off to Spain for a week and I was like, oh, I've got to, like nothing is a something like mm. to be with sometimes you can't always have projects the project can sometimes be the absence of a project and that was yeah. quite interesting to play with yeah like an empty slot on the carousel yeah well just the space yeah being with the space if nothing's mm. coming around just going that's what's here because mm. that's no, the that's idea great. i don't want people to yank it round. it's like really allowing these things to move not standing in the middle and being like ah, <laughs> feeling overwhelmed. Reminds me of Derek Sivers. I think it's very much the way he lives his life. Do you know Derek oh, yeah. Sivers? Yeah, rings the bell. What yeah, music? if you read, I think you'd really like his stuff. And he's, you know, he started a music business because he was just interested in it. It was called CD mm. Baby. Sold it for twenty two oh, million dollars. That's why I've heard of him. Yeah, interviewed I interviewed him. him. He gave yeah. a lovely blurb for the new book. Actually, he said something fantastic about that. So. Um, uh, and he just brought out a new book that's about decision making called Hell Yeah or No. I think. Oh, I so he's a Hell Yeah guy. It. I don't completely agree that you have to have a Hell Yeah to 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 go ahead on something. But I haven't read the whole book yet, so he's he's a great I, I great use writer. That. I use that as a mantra. I got that from Essentialism though, but maybe that was Essentialism was. Do you know the book Essentialism? No, no. Oh, I think you'd find it really interesting. I think Derek was first. Oh, okay. I should have a look at that. Yeah, he may well have been quoting him in it. But I do think the Hell Yeah or No helps just to, when you're not sure about something, sometimes the Hell Yeah, when it's not a Hell Yeah, it can give you permission to say no. Right, yeah. People often say, like, is it a Hell Yeah? And you're like, no. Okay, say no then. You know, like, (laughs) you don't need to do this. Yeah, yeah. Because, and just getting to, as like I was saying earlier, getting to know the difference between what you want to do and what you don't. Yeah. It's, I guess it's like the Marie Kondo spark joy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
It makes me think this is to do with mental health and like as you progress up the mental health scale, you get better at these things because it mm-hmm. seems to me you're pretty well adjusted. So there's a there's a kind of... <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll write that on my, my LinkedIn profile. Yeah, you can put pretty it on your well CV. <laughs> Best-selling author, John really. Williams. But it, I think there's a kind of... Uh, there's a, there is an evolution of, of us as humans that we're trying to get. And when I began this journey, I had no idea what I wanted or how to manage myself or how to make decisions. And now I've become probably unusually good at that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean I don't have any flaws or anything. Um, however, I, uh, I'm aware that we should actually finish up. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to find out, if people want to find out everything you're doing, um first of all there's the power of uke website yeah powerofuke.com and mm-hmm. if you on the mo- at the moment there is a free pdf you can download with loads of songs that i do in my workshops which i put up there for lockdown right. so if anyone was yeah. learning ukulele you can start playing along to 90s yeah. classics um that's available but yeah get in touch through that um i yeah when we can start doing it again i'm gonna be doing workshops so if you're working for a company and it feels like that could be useful get in touch um yeah also do one-to-one coaching if the carousel or the quitting quadrant resonates like book in a call and we can we can chat it through I've also got some like online resources that I can I can send people I'm basically building my website at the moment so yeah. I, I think you'll when it's ready you'll update the show notes yeah so what moment. we can do you're still doing the carousel newsletter oh yeah you? that's true so the carousel what we can do is, is on tiny letter yeah yeah so why don't we link to that on the show notes so for anyone listening to this yeah. uh, there'll be a page just for Sarah Sarah Wheeler uh, to, to be honest the fastest way, way to find anything any of our episodes is now to just go the ideas lab Sarah Wheeler, which is W-E-I-L-E-R. And that will take you straight to the right page. And um, and then you'll be able to get links to the Carousel newsletter. And then once yeah. your site is up, which will I'll be probably Carousel. October 2020, yeah. Um, we can always go back and stick it on the, yeah. the page anyway. And um, oh, yeah, also, you're also YouTube as well. So okay. I've got lots of comedy songs on YouTube. If you type in, probably the best one to start with is the No More Corona, which was our, um, our lockdown that was good. Macarena video. Yeah. That was yeah, good, wasn't it? That was um, really good. no more corona. Hey, <laughs> yeah, a little, little bit. Of and it was like yeah. just, yeah. just your housemates just all yeah. dancing together. It's actually really yeah, we good. Had, we had, we, there was a lot. We also dressed up as Spanish men for the the Spanish oh, yes, translation. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. I, yeah. So, so YouTube and that's Sarah. Well, you can look Sarah no Wyler. Sarah yeah, Wyler. It's a Wyler. Yeah. Yes, it's a German name. All these years I've been calling you Wheeler. I know, you're not the only one, John. All right. (laughs) You're not the (laughs) only one. It's a good job. Don't worry, when I do the intro, I'll get it right. That's all right. Okay. At least it's an original name. I guess you get confused for John Williams, the composer, a lot, don't you? Oh, God, yes. Yes. (laughs) Those jokes get a little old after 50 years. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, well, I think that's been fascinating and we, you know, we'll probably, probably talk again and talk about some of these other things. We haven't even talked yeah. about, uh, what was it that just crossed my mind? Um, you know, uh, you walked the Camino way, um, you, you, you did a thing for Airbnb anyway. So we won't even, it's, that'll, that'll be another podcast oh. and, um, uh, another time. And thank you for being in, oh, being a featured story in Fuck Work, yeah. Let's Play. Cause I think that's a, and that, and that tells a different story about, how you found your way into what you wanted to do and yeah. then still retain the variety. So that's a good read for anybody who's um, the book comes out on August the 24th, theoretically on Kindle. 
uh, for anyone who's um, wants to get that. So great stuff. Thank you very much. Well, big thanks to you, John. Big thanks to you. Because I think it was in 2012 that I went to your scanners night and you sat down with me in the pub afterwards and said, do a 30-day project and I'll write about it in my next book. And I was like, ah. Oh, really? So, yeah. Eight years later, we finally did. But wow. I think you were like trying to get me in gear and I just, I wasn't yeah. ready yet. But, you know, that it definitely, that night was a real catalyst for me oh. in terms of thinking that I could do something different. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast. Podcast.